Welcome to Fireside with Boxcake, podcast for professional public speakers. I'm your host, Richard Roger, the founder of Boxgate.com, which is an online community and service for speakers and event professionals. In each episode, we sit down for an intimate fireside chat with people in the public speaking community to learn how they have mastered the art of getting up on stage and speaking in front of an audience. If you're an aspiring speaker, or just want to improve your on-stage performance, this podcast will help you learn from some of the most accomplished and interesting professional conference speakers. Welcome, Neil, to the Fireside of the Box Gig podcast. It's great to have you on today. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Fantastic. You uh, you have an interesting entry into public speaking, which involves sport. Yeah. How does someone who's a keen sports person in their early days end up public speaking? Yeah. It's, um, so I took up golf at a very young age and uh, it somehow or other became really good at it really quickly. So, so I used to win prizes almost every week. So that, of course, involves um, at the prize giving, you know, the, the dreaded saying a few words, you know, in front of all your fellow club members, but um, I quickly realized or discovered that I quite quite enjoyed that, quite enjoyed being handed a microphone and and say a few words about how you got on, and I would always try and come up with a funny story or a funny something or other that happened during the day. So so as a teenager, I, I was I, that's what I was doing, and then when I was 19, um, the first wedding I was at, I was best man at. That's a trial by fire, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, that just it tells you how innocent though. I'd never been to a wedding, so I had no idea what was involved. So when he said, would you be a best man? I said, yeah, fine. Like, how, you know, what could possibly go wrong? And then two weeks later, and this is going back a bit, but two weeks later, a book arrived in the post, a paperback, uh, like 100 pages in it, and it's called The Duties of a Best Man. Oh, Lord. And that's when I went, oh, dear God, what, what have I signed up for? Um so I, I found the duties of a best man on the day a bit stressful, but once I was handed the microphone and do all those bits, I uh, I loved it. Yeah, you were looking forward to getting the microphone. I was, and I'd kind of my speech figured out, and I'd I'd built in some kind of novelty things. I had a bicycle horn that when I wanted the, everybody to be quiet, I was squeezing that, and I was you know making jokes. You were well prepared. <laughs> yeah, I really I I couldn't wait for it to be honest to, to be handed you know an audience two hundred people uh, who had to listen to you. I just thought this is going to be great. And do you think perhaps? It, it was known that you were a good speaker, so perhaps that was why. Yeah, I think my cousin played golf too, so he, he ah. would have seen me. So he, uh, yeah, he was he was definitely ahead of me. Yeah, he, uh, he ambushed me definitely. Yeah, you were a safe pair of hands, which of course it is important to be as a speaker. But now, of course, you are a professional conference speaker. Yeah. So how do you go from? A lad playing golf, and, and really, this is this is the best uh, public speaking tip we've had so far. Which is, if you want to get good at public speaking, improve your golf game. Yeah, but how do you go, yeah. from, how do you go from that lad of nineteen being the best man to today? Yes, and where where people pay you to speak in front of professional audiences? Yeah, sure. Um, well, actually, there's there's a couple of really just obvious, straightforward steps, really. So that was the wedding was 19. By then, I was working in a bank. I went straight from school into the first job I was offered. So that was a bank. So I sort of worked 
investment bank. So through my 20s, then I got involved in the sports and social end of things in the bank. So that, so that involved, you know, or being MC at events and speaking at all, you know, everything from a quiz to dances and all that. So I was still the man. I guess also in a way, you know, nobody else wanted to do it. So, yes. uh, so <laughs> I kind of fell into my hands. And then, and then later in life, then while still in the bank, when I was, uh, let's say, early 30s, I was asked to then, I got transferred into the training department of the bank. So now here we go. Now, now I, I have an audience almost every day. So, so while, while obviously my job was to design and deliver training courses around selling and customer service and all that, actually looking back now, there weren't training courses at all. It was me speaking for a day, you know, to a trapped audience. So I was never really a trainer. I mean, it went very well. I was, I was more speaking, you know, to the group. And did you experiment, Neil, with um, starting to entertain those audiences and, and yeah. a few jokes? And yeah, I did. Oh, yeah. I don't need much encouragement. So, <laughs> I, I, you know, once once it's me and them in a room and we can close the door. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and, and my first audience, actually, because the training at the time was new to the bank, too. So my first audience were were brand new young people who were going to be cashiers. Now, some of that stuff was really drab, you know, and really boring old dry legislation stuff. But I was always looking for ways to make a game out of it, have a bit of fun with it. And uh, and I was also then teaching them how to juggle, how to juggle three juggling balls as part of the course because that's a classic thing that people believe they can't do. Everybody thinks they can't do, but actually everybody can. So if you can get past that limiting belief, what else can you do? So then I had to buy like, 500 sets of juggling balls every few months, you know, but, but yeah, and I was lucky in that the feedback from all the courses I was doing from branch manager and department managers was, gosh, these guys are, the, the new people are getting are great. They've been trained brilliantly. So I suppose my boss was happy just to leave me at it. He, once he saw the results were fine, he didn't really, he didn't micromanage. He wasn't bothered. What, what were you actually doing all day long? You know, so the results were going really well, so I was I was given loads of space and freedom to kind of do my thing. Yeah, so I was very very lucky that I had a, a boss and a mentor like that. So so I ran I then effectively ran the training department for eight years, and that I was then forty then um, twenty two years ago now. So I was forty, and then I decided the Celtic Tiger in Ireland was just arriving. The economy this was nineteen ninety eight. So I then figured. There must be more to life than working in a bank. I've been here for 22 years. That's long enough. Yeah, yeah, life sentence. So is it possible that I could take now the skills that I've been practicing and all that to a bigger, wider audience? That was the business plan such as it was then, yeah. Did you go out straight away to the companies that are your current clients? Did you approach them directly and say, Mm. you know, I, I can speak to an audience of a couple of hundred employees and inspire them? Or did you start smaller? I started smaller. I mean, in 1998, I, I'm trying to remember now, but I still don't think there was much of a conference scene in Ireland yeah. even then. You know, so so when I set up in business first in 98, I set up as a trainer doing training programs. But but I always wanted to try and get to the the microphone bit. But but there wasn't really a circuit. Every so often, somebody like American would arrive in Dublin and do a talk in the RDS or something. And I would go along to that. And of course, I would sit there the whole time just saying, 
I'd love to be that guy. I'd love to be that person. Yes. I'd love to. So that was the only reference point I had. There was nobody in Ireland really doing it. But you learned from that, I'm sure. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure you were paying significant attention to what they were doing and their yeah. techniques and the way that they, they spoke to the audience. Yeah, exactly. And also the fact that they, it seemed to be okay to have fun. You know, yeah. it doesn't have to be serious and heavy and dry. And then I admired their readiness to just have a bit of fun with us too, you know. So that's kind of interesting. And then I learned from my own work, um, particularly training courses where you're with people all day rather than now I only meet a group for an hour. But people with all day, you find that if people are having fun, that actually means they are very relaxed. And it also means, I think, that they're open to some new ideas or it's easier to learn. So I then decided to make that a, a definite strategy in, in all of my work, is that help people relax and have fun as, as quickly as possible. It's kind of a trick, too. So I would have a kind of standard three or four ways to get like an early laugh, okay. you know, and, uh, and that always gives me a sense then of who I'm dealing with, you know, so. Take us through these, because this is sort of the nitty gritty details. Yeah, well, sometimes it would be quite topical, yeah. you know, so, and you have to get a really good brief and a really good, you have to know your audience a lot to figure out what might they laugh at early on, or can I make a joke about their industry, or can I make a joke about their company or whatever, so that would be one element, is you almost show that you know nothing about technology, you know, if you're in front of a technology, just so they can relax and there's no pressure and all that. Or even, even for example, today I spoke at a conference uh, earlier on today and we had I just you know hello how are you and I, I asked the audience how are you and somebody or they all shouted we're fine thanks and then there's a pause so then I say I'm fine thanks too you know yeah. so they didn't ask me how I am so they have a yeah. laugh at that then so all right kind of you got us Neil and then I'd say something like any news or great stretch in the evening, you know, so it's almost like we're two people meeting at a bus stop. And that gives me a sense, if there's a little bit of laughter, a little bit of titter around that, that gives me a sense that they're up for this, yes. you know. And then there's other things I would use. I would just tell a joke or tell a funny, or here's something funny that happened at a conference last week or whatever. And uh, I would say, this is now off the top of my head, but I would say, and I would look for a laugh in the first five minutes, usually, as a marker as to what am I dealing with here. And you don't really have to be um, a comic genius or anything to, to get that, do you? No, it's, it's normally an everyday yeah. thing or it's a funny thing that happened to me last week or it's something stupid about me or or even so when people hear my introduction and, and the, the importance of a really strong introduction from somebody is really, really valuable. But so, so they have just heard from the introduction that here's a guy who worked for a bank for 22 years and now he's worked for himself for the last 20 I would then say, yes, I'm, I'm a recovering banker. You know, I'm almost better now. And, uh, and and they'd have a laugh at that. It is a great technique. But let me ask you, you must have bombed on occasion. I mean, you, you must have attempted like this and then it's just dead silence. What do you do then? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've had, I've had occasions where it just, yeah, there's been no response from the room at all. So what you do is... As a speaker, I think very often your mouth is your mouth is saying what you want to say, but but your brain is on something. You're having an out of body mm. experience. You know, you're almost looking at yourself, thinking, "Oh my God, they didn't laugh at that." So in that moment, I give myself a very short pep talk. Now I'm still <laughs> speaking to them, but in my head, I'm kind of saying, "Okay, Neeler, that didn't work. So you got to dig a bit deep now. So head down, get on with it, and then try again in about ten minutes." You know, I don't try. 
another joke straight away. I would wait. I'd get into, they obviously want me to just get started, so I'd get into the body of the talk fairly quickly then, no hanging around, but try again, you know, a little while later just to see, do they actually have a sense of humor at all? So, um, and and sometimes, like, one one of the toughest groups I think anybody will ever work with are engineers. Really? Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, good. There you go. Yes, so, we, are, we are very good. And, <laughs> yeah, no, and, and the feedback afterwards is always fantastic. But the thing about an engineer type people um, is massive generalization now, but here goes, is, is they, they want to process the information. They're not particularly demonstrative usually. So, so their faces may not give too much away. They may not roar laughing, but they still love what you're saying and what you're doing. I mean, the feedback from them has been as good as anything else. But just in the moment at that time, they're kind of processing and they're kind of working it through and, and they, they've forgotten to smile. Yeah. You know. So in a, way, in a way, that's what looks like lack of engagement sometimes is actually a lot of engagement. Um, almost, yeah. Almost oh, yeah. It doesn't mean it's going badly. <laughs> uh, yeah. Now, it does. I think as speakers, we have to be careful about our own version of how is this going down mm. because because you can always be surprised. And, and likewise, there are times uh, I've done what I thought was an absolute storming thing and the feedback afterwards was slightly lukewarm. So, um we have to be careful with that. I suppose the speaker has so much invested. I mean, you're laying it all on the line. You're standing here in front of, you know, 300 or 4,000 people that I spoke at recently and like you're it. Yeah. So, and they, they have the power to a certain extent. They can either, they can either respond or choose not to respond. They, they can, you know, they can let you suffer if yeah. they want to. So you are quite vulnerable. So sometimes our impression of, of how it's going isn't that reliable. Yeah, it's good to bear that in mind. And speaking of audience size, I mean, you, you just mentioned uh, an audience of 4,000. Are you intimidated by audience size? Does it have an effect on you before you go up or is it all old adage? No, for me, the, the bigger, the better in a way, but it, do, it does change things. So I, I love 20 people and I love 4,000 essentially in one way. You, would, you wouldn't do anything differently. You'd approach both mm. exactly the same way. Uh, in 20, you can get nice kind of sense from people in the room. You're closer to them as to how it's going. Usually when you're speaking to like an audience of a thousand or more in venues like that, all the spotlights, the lighting is all on you and you actually can't really see anybody. Whereas in a smaller group, you, you can you can really connect with people. So it can be a little bit unreal. The, the bigger it gets, the more unreal it can seem. So how do you judge the audience reaction or the audience mood when you have all those lights? It's actually the same as a small group. The kind of more reliable uh, indicators of how this is going is, are they, well, are they laughing when you want them to laugh? Are they quiet when you want them to be quiet? Are they nodding their heads you know mm. at certain points you might be talking about something and you want people to kind of they're almost showing their agreement with what you're saying you know so these are the clues as we're going and you have the lights you can't see but with smaller groups if you, if you just pace from side to side a little bit not too much but a little bit are they, are they following you you know and people want to maintain eye contact with you the whole time where you, you see people leaning to one side to look around the person so, so they, they're keeping their eyes on you that's a really that's good sign. That's probably the best one of all is that they don't want to take their eyes off you for fear of missing something. So um, also I should say that 
I don't use any uh, visual aids, so I don't use any slides of any kind. I've never, in 20 odd years, I've never used PowerPoint once. I would occasionally have a fifth chart to doodle on, but mostly it's, it's the strongest connection I can make between me and them. I don't want anything to distract from that. So I'm watching them, watching me in a way, and that's the most reliable. If, if they're following you around the room, then they're really with you. I think the PowerPoint thing is really interesting because so many of us now in our work lives are so used to having PowerPoint and using PowerPoint for work presentations. Yeah. PowerPoint presentations are so, it's just assumed, especially at technology conferences, that you'll have one. It's almost considered quite extraordinary when people don't. Yeah. It's considered quite a challenge to give a talk without one. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah, okay, it might be a challenge. It also depends on, on the length of time you have. I suppose if you're speaking for, sometimes I would speak for two hours. So it is useful to have some visual aids for that, just to give everybody a break, maybe. But I no, I would challenge any speaker. I would I'd challenge any to speak for 30 minutes or do a 30-minute slot with no slides, no nothing and see can you keep their attention for 30 minutes. Um, it's a really good test of your content. If your content is, is good enough, it should be okay. And if your delivery is good enough, obviously. But I would challenge anybody, every so often at least, to do one with no safety net, no no slide. And by the way, no cards, no script either. I never use one. I You know, I should know it from start to finish. And then the issue then is if you manage the stress of the thing, you, you don't you won't forget anything. You know, having a blank on stage is somebody who is is too stressed because stress uh, eats into short-term memory. So if you, if you manage the stress of it, you'll remember everything. But it's, can you trust it? Let's come back to the stress thing in a minute because I, I know you, you speak about mental health a lot, so that's yeah. an important topic. You've given us an interesting pathway here to go from slides to no slides. Yeah. I'm just thinking about myself and the, the way I'd approach it based on, on what you just said. Mm. Probably, uh, you know, when you're giving a technical talk, Obviously, there's a, there's a lot of detail in the technical information. Yeah. You need to do it a few times with the slides at a few different conferences yeah. and build enough confidence in your own understanding of the material. But at that point, after you've done it a few times, uh, especially if it was a shorter talk, 20 minutes or so, yeah. it could probably be done. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I know if somebody's giving a technical talk, there are numbers and details and stuff like that that they need to share. That's fine. I guess it's a bit easier for me and that I'm talking about I'm talking about mental health and mental fitness, so I'm really talking about life most of the time. And, and most of what I do is stories and examples, and, and I throw in an occasional model, you know, here and there. So I guess maybe it is easier for me to get away with not having slides. But but, but just on the on the slides, because you see, so I'm a professional conference. I'm at I'm at conferences every week, and if I had one euro the amount of time I've heard somebody with slides say, oh, you probably can't read this down the back, uh, you know, so I'll just explain it. And I'm sitting there thinking, how dare you put up a slide can't be read, that yeah. half the room can't read? Yeah. So, so that's, there's somebody who hasn't thought about the audience, has done no preparation, and are inflicting stuff on the audience that people just can't see. So it absolutely drives me crazy. Now, I know I'm particularly sensitive because it's, it's my industry. So I'm really fussy about other speakers. I find it really hard. I hope yeah. that doesn't sound arrogant. You're absolutely right. Yeah, if the standard is bad, I figure, uh, and generally it is, by the way, if the standard is bad, I feel it, it's pulling down my industry. Yes. Let's return to that topic, stress, and how to manage it 
when you know you have a public speaking job to do, yeah. a lot of people find public speaking extremely stressful. And yeah. even if you started doing it at smaller conferences, it's still a pretty big deal. Yeah. I mean, do, do you have any perspectives on that, especially since mental health is one of the topics you talk about? Yeah, well, certainly, firstly, just in a general sense, the thing about stress management is that people seem to think that stress management is about reducing the stress in their lives. And that's not what stress management is. Stress management is about building your capacity to cope. It's about us all getting stronger to cope with like whatever is coming next. So that's the first thing. So it's about, so for the stress of public speaking, it's about building yourself up to deal with whatever you're going to be facing, you know, at the time. So it's kind of building yourself up rather than trying to control everything. Even this morning at the, the event I was at, I was wearing a lapel mic and, and the little transformer thing was on it, it was in my pocket. I sat down on a chair. See, I, I kind of, when I'm speaking, I kind of act out things and have a bit of fun and do a bit of role playing. So I sat in a chair for a moment. We were talking about something. As I sat down, my um, came off my shirt and ended up on the floor. So, so there's a situation where you could get stressed. So I just picked the mic up and spoke into it and gradually fixed it back onto my shirt and just kept on talking. I could see the sound guy at the bottom of the room. He was stressed, but but I was fine. <laughs> It's likely that there will always be something at the last minute, you know, that's gonna that's gonna cause a difficulty. So it's it's to prepare yourself really for stuff like that. Secondly, I think I, I would have a playlist. So I have so I've learned this from working with sports people. So I have a fourteen minute playlist, which is basically four songs that I listen to when I'm fourteen minutes away from the conference location. Okay. So so even even before I get there, I'm managing my stress. So I'm listening to songs that I like to help keep me calm. I'm breathing. And I'm also, and this is going to sound really weird, but here goes. I'm also, as I'm approaching the conference center, just on my own, I'm humming a very low hum to myself, which is warming up my throat. And I'm trying to find the right tone of voice, really, before I get there. See, see the danger is people do the opposite is they're not warming up their throat, they're breathing. They haven't spoken to anybody for an hour. They arrive at the conference and almost the first thing they say is the moment they've taken to the stage, you know. Yeah. Uh, so they haven't yeah. warmed up. So I'm testing the quality of my breathing and my voice for a good, well, minimum 40 minutes, but usually for a good half an hour before I get there. I then, if I'm waiting to go on, I wait at the back of the room because that gives you a much better sense of the audience and the room and the acoustics. They want you to sit at a head table. They want you to sit at a speaker's table. But, but that's always at the front, so I never do. I always stand at the back. I don't sit down either. Sometimes when you sit down, you're getting very passive. So I, I prefer to stand at the back of the room, stay alert, and get a sense of the room from there. I'm still practicing my breathing, and I'm still humming quietly to myself. This is really great stuff. Mm. I'm just thinking about my own experiences speaking at conferences. A lot of uh, tech conferences have the so-called green room where you, you get better water yeah. and you can go and do stuff. But, you know, in the, in the terms you've just described, the problem with that is you, you're going in there and you're not speaking to anybody and you're kind of hidden away. Exactly. And then you go out on stage, which is not great for you, yeah. is it? No, no, I never, I never used that either. I was at an event, I was speaking at an event in Poland last week and they wanted me the lovely green room. But no, I said, I need to be in the room with everybody beforehand so um. yeah because you're picking up energy from the audience uh, and of course you know if you've seen a few of the speakers ahead of you you can reference them that sort of thing exactly. i like this idea of standing at the back because you are always right 
Oh, you're always shoved up the front, and you also feel like you're a little bit in a, in a goldfish boat. You know, people are kind of looking at you. Right down the back, you're told there's no pressure on you at all. You, you can you can do press ups, you can do yoga posture if you want. And nobody is. They're all looking the other direction. Yeah, they don't care. <laughs> I'm always there for the previous speaker, at least if not the previous two, because I want to see. Do they get a laugh? Uh, were they really boring and dry technical stuff? Like, what, what am I following? So, so I would always do that. And actually, the conference organizers love that because they think, oh, this is great. And it does give you something to refer back to. I can, I can then use some of the previous terminology and language that the, speak, the internal people were using. But, but I like to see, uh, almost as a competitor, I like to see what, what have I got to beat? And, uh, and what, what, what's gone before me? Uh, you know, are they exhausted before I... Because as, as, as the token external speaker, I'm usually on last on the day. Yeah, yeah. So the audience are, are tired before I even start. They're definitely tired. Most conferences, most internal conferences, the, the organizers do too much during the day. They create conference fatigue by around about two o'clock in the afternoon. Because if it's a all hands town hall event and it's on, you see every senior director usually wants their 10 minutes. Yeah. You know, oh, really? Oh, can I speak of that? And I want to tell them what we're doing this year with their heart in the right place. But it means then by two or three o'clock in the afternoon, the audience have been subjected to about 10 speakers. You know, they're absolutely exhausted. And probably not great speakers either. <laughs> Definitely PowerPoint. No, and it's dry and it's technical. Yeah, exactly. So, so by the time I'm on, then the, the, you know they're they're waiting to get to the bar. They're waiting to have a bit of food and go home, and then I'm on. And also, the other thing is when I stand up to speak, um, the thing is way behind schedule. Of course. So I don't have an hour that I was told I'd have. I now have forty minutes. So, so that that's a classic case. Like in Ireland. No conferences ever run on time. I think that is pretty universal. Yeah. I was at a, a technical conference in London recently that was very, it was, it was actually noteworthy. It was run very, very tightly on schedule. Yes. But that was almost yes. uh, the exception that proves the rule. Oh, yeah. No, London, UK is good. Um, I've spoken in Germany quite a bit. Uh, they're wonderful at being on time, like to the minute. It's clockwork. It's fantastic. Uh, in Ireland, so here, here's, here's, a, here's a number for you. So I've, I've been speaking in the conference circuit in Ireland for 20 years. In Ireland, there were only three conferences where I had exactly the time slot I was told I'd have. Wow. Three in 20 years. In 20 years? I was going to say, oh, no, not just this year, in 20 years. 20 years? That's, that's like that's hundreds. Like in, in a good year, I would speak at 80 or 90 events. So so there you go. And, and actually, of those three, two were were run by the same guy. <laughs> so that's, yeah. Um, but then, I mean, these, these are the challenges one has as a speaker. Yes. And we're, this, this is back to our point about you need to be ready for that. that that's the stress. You know, if, if, if you're going to get stressed by that, you know, you're already on the back foot even before you say anything. So you just, I just have accepted it now. And, and because you see, because I don't have a set number of slides to get through, I can edit and tweak. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Literally as I'm going, because, because I know then that I've, I've 20 minutes less than I had prepared for. Yeah, there you go. So, so in, in a way, once you master that talking with that slides, it actually reduces your stress because you, you have more flexibility. 
Yeah. A, a couple of other ones on the topic of difficult ones. I gave a talk a couple of years ago for Google, a client of mine would be Google, yeah. and I spoke in their, in their conference. They have a lovely conference center in their headquarters in Barrow Street. And it's kind of like a high-tech amphitheater. So I was ready to go. The 300 people were in. The guy was on the stage with me, checking everything, sound, everything. And then he looked at me and said, are you, are you ready now? Will we start now? I said, I'm ready. He said, well, okay, just one thing before you start, Neil. And he looked at the audience and he he just gestured to his ear. He kind of pointed at his right ear. I didn't know what was going on. So then I looked at the audience. So everybody in the audience and reached down to beside their feet and they took out uh, earphones and put them on. So nobody in the audience spoke English. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. So there's going to be a simultaneous translation of, of an hour's talk. So, uh, so oh, dear God. You had an interpreter standing there beside you or in the room. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so now, while they're sitting there looking at you, they're experiencing the whole thing. Uh, auditory, so so they actually aren't really looking at you. They're kind of li- they're kind of listening. It's like they're listening to a podcast, so um, in their own language. So none of the jokes worked, and none of you know um, the timing was also. So yeah, that was one. And then I did one then for Apple, where I sat in a tiny little office looking at a laptop, and there was a guy sitting beside me, and he had a laptop. And, and this was to home-based customer service people. So on the screen of the laptop, I could see 20 faces. I could see them. They could see me, like head and shoulders. I could see what country they were in. And then every few minutes, it refreshed and another 20. So I spoke to 575 people all over the world. But all I was doing really for an hour was just speaking at a laptop. So difficult. Yeah, I've, I've done one or two of those. Really, really tough. Yeah. Uh, really tough to have the end. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's really. Uh, but then I got confident then because I because the idea was that they would ask a question through the technical guy. They could type a question to him and I'd answer it, so they could hear me. I could, but I, I kind of got into it then. So as I got more confident, I said to the guy, "Can we open it up and they can just ask me the question in English?" And he said, "Yeah, sure." So then we had great fun with it then. So then um, it became a two-way discussion as well. So and that, I think that made it better for everybody. Like I think it's I think it's fair to say. At any event, every every presentation improves when somebody asks a question. That's an interesting view. It can go the other way. Um, so, I mean, I've, sure. I've had conferences where the organizers have banned questions. And maybe this is a maybe yeah. this is a thing with technical audiences because there is a, a certain personality at technical events that likes to prove the speaker wrong. Yes, yeah. End up with cranky questions. Uh, maybe it's more. Maybe it's more just us techies. <laughs> I think that is part of the dynamic. So when somebody asks you a question, there's a couple of interesting things happening in the room now. Firstly, usually, you know how this goes. When somebody asks a question, it's, you know, 20 other people wanted to ask that question too. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the first thing is they're actually speaking on behalf of the group usually. But then the second bit of it, it, it adds a bit of spice to the whole thing because, yeah, people are kind of thinking, all right, right, Neil, come on, let's see how you handle this, you know. So it does add a bit of an edge to proceedings, I think. But then I think it's 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 then back to, like you've just said, if somebody is asking a question to test you or, or you sense they're on a particular agenda, I think then if, if total honesty is the way to go, you know, I don't have the answer for that or, you know, I, I think 
I think to stay credible in front of the audience, I think you just go with your total gut reaction to any question. It may not it may not be the best answer, it may not be an amazing answer, but from a credibility point of view, you haven't tried to bullshit anybody and I think that's the audience and I think really respect that, you know. The audience will value that. Well, that is a fantastic point to end on, I think. This has been mm. uh, super, super interesting. I'm going to get yeah. out there and practice my golf because that's the key to public <laughs> speaking. Um, but I think definitely uh, the idea of uh, quietly hanging back at the back of the room to soak up the atmosphere. Yeah. I love that. That is a fantastic one. Neil, it has been wonderful. Great. Thank you so much. Pleasure, Richard. Thanks for having me. Very good. Thank you so much for listening. Just a few things before the embers fade and wrap up another episode of Fireside with Foxy. You can find notes and links from this podcast at foxgate.com slash podcasts. We also publish a weekly newsletter on public speaking, selecting the best advice and techniques from some of the world's greatest speakers, both ancient and modern. Rhetoric is an old and revered art, not especially easy to master, but a skill like any other, one you can also learn. Visit foxgig.com slash newsletter to subscribe. If you've enjoyed this fireside chat, please consider subscribing to the podcast. Please also leave a review that helps us make this podcast even better. If you'd like to contact me directly, please email richard at voxgig.com. If you'd like to be counted as a supporter, just let me know and I'll add you to our supporters page. Till next time, remember, take a deep breath, pause, and step forward.